We want to continue our uh, series of uh, lessons dealing with the themes of Lent. We will do that in this Bible study and in this evening's Bible study at 6.30. We invite you to tune in uh, for that Bible study as well. Typically, uh, during this week, during Holy Week, we would not even be having Bible study as we would be in the midst of our annual spring revival. But because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we have had to make changes uh, to our schedule, obviously, and uh, we wanted to be sure that we had the opportunity to share a word from the Lord, even if it were not in a revival worship experience. We want to call your attention today, uh, and this, this will be both uh, in this Bible study and in the evening Bible study, we want to call your attention to the 14th chapter of the gospel as recorded by Mark. We're going to look at the first 11 verses uh, in this Bible study, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 26 in the evening Bible study. That'll give you a head start as to where we are going. With regard to a theme, uh, we, we said that we're talking about the themes of Lent. The theme in this Bible study, in these first 11 verses, uh, is sacrificial love. We want you to, to, to wrap your, your minds around the idea of sacrificial love. Let's read the passage and then we'll move into it. In only two days, the eight-day festival of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin. The high priests and religion scholars were looking for a way they could seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. They agreed that it should not be done during Passover week. We don't want the crowds up in arms, they said. Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper. While he was eating dinner, a woman came up carrying a bottle of very expensive perfume. Opening the bottle, she poured it on his head. Some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's criminal, a sheer waste. This perfume could have been sold for well over a year's wages and handed out to the poor. They swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. Not so with me. She did what she could when she could. She pre-anointed my body for burial. And you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, what she just did is going to be talked about admiringly. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the cabal of high priests, determined to betray him. They couldn't believe their ears and promised to pay him well. He started looking for just the right moment to hand him over. All right. Let's look at this passage and see what we can glean from it that would be helpful 
uh, to us in understanding sacrificial love. Uh, the, the passage uh, can be looked at prophetically, practically, and theologically. Prophetically, the passage deals with the picture that is being painted of Jesus's humiliation, the, 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 the ongoing tale uh, of, of Jesus's passion. And, and we're seeing the intricate details of how conspiracy takes place. Notice what it says in, in, in the very opening verses. The religion scholars and the high priests were looking for a way that they could seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Did you get that? The religion scholars and the high priests were looking for a way that they could seize Jesus and kill him. The religious folk wanted to put Jesus to death. There was a conspiracy afoot by religious folk to put Jesus to death. This is a part of the intricate detail of his humiliation. It, it, you know, we, we like to think in the church that it was, uh, uh, it, it was outside folk. It was the Roman government that did it. It was worldly folk that, that, that put Jesus to death. But in truth... It was church folk that put Jesus to death. It, it was the religious leaders of that day that came together and decided that Jesus must be killed. Practically, we're confronted with the contrast between selfish interests and righteous interests. What do I mean by that? Well, the actions of, uh, of the priests and the religion scholars and the attitudes of the disciples and the specific betrayal of Judas, all of which is contained in this passage, they're all centered, they're all rooted in selfish interests. Many of them rationalized by the perpetrators. The, 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 the selfish interests were, were done by people who had made up their minds that even though it appeared to be right, uh, we were going to do this. That, 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 that no, regardless of what this woman had done in showing love for Jesus, uh, that it was an evil thing and it was the straw that broke the camel's back. They were... Their activity is rooted in uh, selfish interest. By contrast, the anointing of this woman was a giving act. The anointing of this woman was an act of selflessness, was an act of love and compassion. That's where we get the theme sacrificial love from. And, and even though it was harshly criticized by those who saw it, it was praised by Jesus. And how often is this the case with us? Theologically, the third thing that we want to lift up in the way of introduction, we're made to see that through the strategic actions of selfish people with evil intentions, God's will is still accomplished. One of the fascinating things about God and about how God works 
is that God works in such a way that people think they're doing what they want when in fact they're doing what God wants them to do. We, we, we preached about this Sunday when the mob cried, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And, and, and we closed that message by making the point that while the crowd got what they wanted in that they got Barabbas released and they got Jesus crucified, in so doing, they were actually unwitting participants in accomplishing the will of God. And it is evidence that God is always in control under any and every circumstance, that, 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 that God will take what people intend for evil and he will use it for good. And, and it's a reminder of the sovereignty of God, that things don't have to work out in a picture-perfect fashion. In, in, in fact, I'm all, I, I often say there's no such thing as happily ever after. In, in life, uh, things are messy and things are complicated and things are ugly. And yet through all of the mess and all of the complication and all of the ugliness, God's will is still done. And, and for us, that's good news because it lets us know that circumstances are not in charge, that evil people are not in charge. Even evil people under the guise and, and under the cover of piety and religion, they are not in charge, but God himself is in charge. So what do we see in, in this? Let's look at uh, some of the prime characters uh, in this portion of Mark chapter 14 in order to understand what is taking place. The first group that's listed, we've already uh, mentioned, and that has to do with the high priest and the religion scholars looking for a way to seize Jesus and kill him. In other gospel accounts, it is told, we're giving more detail about the discussion. In fact, the high priest Caiaphas rationalizes that it was necessary for Jesus to die so that good will come about. It, it, it's better that one man die so that the rest of us will be okay. And so he rationalized the death of Jesus that way. But what did, what did he actually mean by that? Well, we, we tried to tell you all last week that uh, Part of the job of the Sanhedrin Council, part of the job of the religious orthodoxy of that day uh, that the Roman government was most concerned about had to do with keeping the peace within the province. Uh, Israel was not an independent nation at this point. Israel uh, was an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. And the empire had little interest, little concern. They were indifferent towards the religious behavior and activities of uh, the people that they ruled. What they were concerned about was maintaining the peace. 
anything that threatened the peace threatened uh, the, 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 the tranquility of the lives of the people who lived there. And so the, the, the Jewish religious orthodoxy was tasked by the Roman government to maintain the peace within the community. Y'all can do whatever y'all want to do. Y'all can worship whoever you want to worship, and you can worship however you choose to worship, just as long as peace is maintained. And, and for the Sanhedrin to maintain their power, to maintain their authority, to not be usurped by Roman government officials, they took it very, very seriously that they had to keep the peace. And Jesus was a disruption to the peace that they had established. Jesus, uh, more and more over the life of his ministry, his ministry was, was three to three and a half years in length, depending upon whose timeline you look at. But over that span of three to three and a half years, Jesus had become more and more of a problem for Orthodox Judaism because he simply would not comply with what Orthodox Judaism wanted him to do. Over and over again, we see him in, in confrontation with the Jewish leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, where they said, our tradition says this, and Jesus countered by saying, well, God wants this, and your hypocrisy is an offense to God and is a disruption to the peace that God wants us to have. That's what Jesus meant when he says in John 14 and 27, peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. It's a contrast to the peace that was being offered by the religious orthodoxy of that day uh, because their peace was an attempt to maintain an absence of violence, was, was to maintain a, 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 an absence of physical disruption. But that's not real peace. That, that, that's just getting along uh, in, in, in what is really a terrible situation. Jesus said, real peace is rooted in my relationship, in, in your relationship with me and my relationship with you. So they came together, this first group, and they had already decided that Jesus must die. What Mark says is not that they talked about should he die. Mark says what they talked about is when should he die. The decision had already been made. For peace to be maintained, then Jesus must die. And for us, it's only a matter of when it will happen. Uh, and, and, and they decided that it needed to happen before Passover took place. It had to happen uh, before the actual activities took place because they feared an uprising from among the people. It tells us something about hatred. And, that, and, and that's what these people are displaying toward Jesus, hatred. Hatred can never wait. Hatred must act as soon as the opportunity presents itself. Hatred moves behind the scenes. Hatred never comes out into the open until it's too late for you to do anything about it. A lot of people who smile in your face really don't mean you any good. 
a lot of people who hug you and 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 kiss you although i know we're, we're practicing social distancing now a lot of people who, who give you those gleeful waves and everything they really don't mean any good and behind their smiles there are always efforts to undermine to destroy to to tear you down we have to always be on guard for people whose motivations are personal and political rather than righteous. For the high priest, who at this time was a man by the name of Caiaphas, uh, his interest was not in doing the things of God, even though he was a religious leader. His interest was in keeping the Roman government happy and by doing so, keeping Rome out of the affairs of what was going on in day-to-day life for the Jewish people. So he rationalized. I need to make sure that all of these people are safe and, and, and free from Roman oppression any more than they already have to deal with it. And if it means sacrificing Jesus in order to do this, then I'm willing to do that. Evil can always find a rationalization for the evil that it seeks to do. And that was their rationalization. Well, that's one group of people that's there. Another group of people, well, well, another person that is presented in this story is a man by the name of Simon. And he was well known uh, in that time because he was called Simon the leper, which means that he was well known to the people at that time. Uh, uh, He was an individual that Jesus had cured of leprosy. Uh, Now, Leprosy was uh, a terrible skin disease, and uh, leprosy was a threefold problem for the person who contracted it. First of all, it was a physical malady. Not only did you have rashes and soreness, uh, but often those sores were painful, so you were uh, regularly under uh, uh, the anxiety of physical pain. Uh, that, that was one part of the problem. The second part of the problem was that leprosy was an extremely contagious disease. So once you were determined to have leprosy, you were cut off from the rest of society. You became a social outcast. Uh, lepers lived in colonies amongst themselves. There's a passage of scripture where Jesus comes across 10 lepers and he heals them. He, he tells them to go show themselves to the priest. And as they're going to show themselves to the priest, uh, all 10 of them are healed and nine of them keep on going. Uh, one, a Samaritan turns back uh, to give Jesus thanks for what he has done. But the fact that they lived in colonies was was indicative of the fact that they could not be with people who did not have leprosy. They were outcasts from society. They they were cut off from uh, their own family members. They were cut off from loved ones. They were cut off from friends. They they had no business associates because they could not conduct any business. Uh, they they were socially removed from society and and you and I both know that more often than not out of sight also means out of mind that was the second problem the third problem with lepers was that not only were they considered social outcasts 
but they were considered to be under divine judgment. If you suffered with leprosy, the, 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 the thinking of the community was that God was punishing you for some terrible sin. So there was the physical malady, there was the social stigma, and there was the religious renunciation, all of which was wrapped up in this disease. But Jesus had healed this man, Simon who suffered from this disease. He had healed him of his leprosy and he had freed this man from physical bondage, from economic bondage, from social bondage, and from spiritual bondage. And as a result of this healing that had taken place, Simon decided that he would hold a dinner in his home and Jesus would be the guest of honor. And that's what we see in, in the passage. Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper. While he was eating dinner, a woman came up carrying a bottle of very expensive perfume. Opening the bottle, she poured it on his head. Some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's criminal a sheer waste. Well, that's how it reads in uh, uh, Mark's gospel account. If you read it from other gospel accounts, it says that not only did the guests become indignant, but Simon became indignant. And, 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 and one passage actually says that Simon question whether or not Jesus could be the Messiah because this woman with, with such a terrible reputation, this disreputable woman was touching him. He asked if, if he was the Messiah, would he not know uh, what kind of a woman was touching him? Now, I find that interesting. I also find it terrible. I, I, I find it terribly interesting. I find it hypocritical that Someone who has just been liberated from all of the bondages that he was suffering, physical bondage, economic bondage, social estrangement, spiritual and religious bondage. He's just been released from all of that. He's just been restored back to his family. And yet he voices a word of condemnation against this woman who comes and bows at Jesus's feet and anoints him with this ointment. And it, it, it's a reminder that some of us have short-term memory when it comes to other people. We are so grateful to God for what he's done for us. And yet we are still filled with condemnation. We're still filled with, with, with rejection, with hatred towards others. And we don't want them to be blessed the way we have been blessed. How is it that we can be so short-sighted towards the needs of others when, 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 when we have been so blessed ourselves? While you're watching this from wherever you're watching this, whether you're at home or at work or, or wherever you are, wherever you're watching this, God has blessed you. 
And God is blessing you. You woke up this morning. God bless you. You you have health and strength at a time when health is at the highlight of everyone's concern. You have a reasonable portion of health and strength. God has blessed you. In spite of, uh, of the economic peril that seems to confront all of us, you still have money in your pocket. You're still able to do the things uh, that, that you want to do. God has blessed you. How is it that you can be so blessed by God and yet have no compassion toward those who are in need of a blessing? This woman who comes to Jesus comes out of an act of selflessness, not selfishness, selflessness. She comes uh, out of a desire to show love for Jesus and appreciation for Jesus. Now, we don't know what she's appreciative for. We don't know whether Jesus had done something for this woman or not, depending upon which passage of scripture uh, you read. In, in, in Mark's gospel, she remains unnamed. In John's gospel account, John chapter 12, verse 3, she's named as Mary. But regardless of whether or not she's someone who we know or someone who we don't know, what we do know is that she responds to Jesus with genuine sacrificial love. What she does is loving. She takes what is expensive and she breaks the seal and she pours it on Jesus so that both his head and his feet are covered. It's a beautiful act that catches the attention of everyone that is present. I want you to consider five things about this act. First of all, she did something that Jesus said was wonderfully significant for me. The wonder of it lays in the very extravagance of it. She did not spare anything but broke the flask and poured the whole quantity of it on him. The passage says that that ointment was very expensive. A year's wages was how valuable this ointment was. And yet she poured it without reservation on Jesus' head. The sheer extravagance of it was something that caught uh, Jesus's attention and he says it is a wonderfully significant act second it was a timely act it was something that could only be done now anyone who recognized what Jesus is saying here is that he was talking about the fact that my time is growing short I'm not going to be with you always in fact he draws a contrast between his lack of time and the fact that the time for serving the poor is always out there. I like the way Peterson puts this when he talks about uh, their, their concerns about the poor. Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She's just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Now that's different than the way we typically read that, where, where it says in the King James Version, the poor you will have with you always. 
we, we, we read that as a platitude. And in fact, we lift it up as a platitude to justify the fact that there are always poor people out there. But Peterson makes it specific. And what he says is your pretense that you're concerned about doing something for the poor is actually false. Because you'll, you'll always have time to do something for poor people. Because poor people will always be around. You'll have the rest of your lives to be able to do something to help poor folk. That's not what you're really concerned about. What you're concerned about is that you saw something valuable uh, being used for me and you got upset about it. It was a timely act because Jesus recognized that while they had plenty of time to do actions for the poor, there wasn't a lot of time left in his life. Third, I want you to see that she did what was feasible. The text says she has done the best that she could. And that's important because it is practical for us. It's the attitude that Jesus expects from us. He expects us to do the best that we can. Let's be clear about a couple of things. There's a lot that we can't do. There's a lot that needs to be done that we simply don't have the resources to do. But it is always a mistake to use what we can't do as an excuse for not doing what we can. And too often, we, 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 we say because we can't do the thing that we would really like to do, that we're not going to do anything at all. I'd love to be able uh, to pay off all of the church's bills. But since I can't do that, I ain't going to even give my regular tithe an offering. I'd like to be able to eliminate all of the maladies of our community, but I can't do that, so I'm not going to help this person whose need I can easily meet. Don't let what you can't do stop you from doing what you can. That's God's expectation. And here's the promise. If you do what you can, God will bless what you do. And he will enlarge it. And tremendous results will follow. Do you remember the, 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 the passage where uh, Jesus has the multitude, 5,000 men besides women and children, an overflowing crowd that he has taught and preached to all day. And when it came to the end of the day, he, he asks one of his disciples, Philip, uh, what, what, what do you think we should do for these folk. And Philip says, we can't do nothing, send them home. We can't feed them at all. We don't have the resources. We don't have anything. Uh, and, 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 and somebody says, there is one little boy here. And one little boy has two fish and five loaves of bread. But looking at the size of the crowd, what, what, what is that small amount with so large a crowd? And Jesus was undeterred by the contrast in size, a small amount for such a large crowd. What he said was, bring me what you have. Whatever it is that you have, give it to me. Whatever it is that you have, offer it up to me. And, and if you offer it up to me, I'm going to do something wonderful with it. 
that's God's call for all of us. God's call for all of us is not to be deterred by the thousands who are hungry, but to take our two fish and five loaves of bread and offer it up to him and then let him make the difference. We often stop short of what we can do because we don't trust God to do great things with what we have. Fourth thing I want you to see is that it was a prophetic act. Jesus says she has pre-anointed my body for burial. Now, I want to be clear. This should not be interpreted that Mary had some kind of spiritual insight that the others present did not have. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. What he is saying is that while she didn't realize what she was doing, Mary was doing something that serves as a prophetic act for what was about to happen. Her motivation is love. But Jesus takes her act of love and uses it as a statement of affirmation about who he is and what will happen to him. He's telling those who are at the dinner, you don't know it yet, but I'm about to die. Now, he had, he had said that to the disciples uh, once before, but there were many in that room who were not disciples of Jesus this serves as a reminder that my time in this world is short, that, that it will not be long until uh, I will have to endure tremendous suffering and I will die. And so this anointment with this, with, with, with this expensive oil is simply a prophetic action designed to let the world know that my body is being made ready for burial. And then, finally, uh, it was a memorable act. Jesus said, you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, that is, the gospel is preached, what she just did is going to be talked about with admiration. And what that says to us is that the seed of love that Mary planted would bear fruit. That's good news for us today. It reminds us that when we plant seeds of love, when we do loving acts, loving acts become memorable acts, and they become powerful acts, and they become acts that serve as motivation for other loving acts to be done as well. Some people are motivated uh, to do the right thing when they see other folk doing the right thing. It's a message to the church. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Uh, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Sometimes the reaping has to do with, 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 with others doing good as well, with others doing well also because they want to be a part of what you are doing. It's also the case with evil acts. Evil acts can be multiplied, and, and if we become sources of evil, then we become responsible for multiplying evil in the world. But isn't it so much better? if we become responsible for multiplying love 
for multiplying sacrifice, for doing good things rather than evil things. So Jesus says that what was done was wonderfully significant. It was timely. It was feasible. It was prophetic. It was memorable. And this is in contrast to the response of those who saw it. The, the, the response of those who were there, we're talking about various groups that are represented. We've looked at, 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 at the religious orthodox, and we've looked at Simon the leper, and, and, and we've looked at the loving act of Mary. But the response of those who saw it was indignation. And that's a group that we also need to lift up. There are some who are made indignant by good works. There are always people, particularly in the church, that want to place a monetary value on everything. They seem to know the price of everything. I'm always uh, tickled when, 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 when I talk about this uh, by uh, the show that used to be on, on the air, Everybody Hates Chris. And, and, and the guy who played the father in Everybody Hates uh, Chris uh, knew the value of everything. If they spilled a drop of milk on the table, he'd say something like, boy, do you know that you just spilled 67 cents worth of milk on the table? If, 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 if a shoe uh, uh, had a hole in it, you just, you, you just cost me $7.42 because I have to replace that shoe. There's some folk in the church who are just like that. Anything you talk about, any idea that you bring for ministry, any idea that you pro propose to help people, the first thing somebody's going to say is, what's this going to cost? How much is that? Do we have enough money to cover it? Indignation. That's really there. You, you're posturing like you're showing concern. You're not really concerned. What you're really trying to do is stop godly progress from taking place by saying that it costs more than we can afford. If we look at the world only in terms of dollars and cents, we will miss out on the most important things of life. The church has to get away from a dollar and cents attitude. Yes, ministry costs money. I'm the first to say it. You can't do ministry if there is not money. But heaven help the church that decides that it costs too much to feed the hungry. That it costs too much to clothe the naked that it costs too much to, to reach out to those who are in need in a loving and relevant and purposeful way in the name of Jesus. Closed fists not only don't let anything go out, they also don't let anything come in. When we close our fist to missionary outreach, when we close our fist to ministry, when, when, when we close our, our hands to the ideas of service, then we are not only holding tight to what we have, but we're not allowing God to add to what we already have. God has stuff that he wants to add to us. 
We say all the time when, 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 when we have our traditional worship and, and we go through our offertory period, we, we talk about the fact that uh, if we test God, if, 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 if we give to God in proportion to how he has given to us, he says, prove me now herewith and see if I will not open the window of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Well, God can't pour nothing into you if you are closed all the time. In order to receive from God, you've got to be willing to be open to giving to God. There was indignation on the part of this crowd to this woman's selfless act. And so often there are those who are put off there are those who are put out. There are those who are actually angry. Look again at what Peterson says. He says uh, that some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's more than mad. Furious. And they said it's criminal. It, it says that they swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. Well, some passages say that the indignation was over who the woman was and the kind of life that she had lived. But Mark clearly makes the point that the indignation was over the expense involved in the service that was rendered to Jesus. If you have a dollar and cents mentality, you're going to always miss out on the more important things of life. Well, finally, I've got 11 minutes left. Uh, finally, verses 10 and 11. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the cabal of high priests, determined to betray him. They couldn't believe their ears and promised to pay him well. He started looking for just the right moment to hand him over. Judas is a far more complex figure than we often uh, portray him. We, 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 we just portray him uh, in very simplistic, very black and white terms. And I don't have the time to go into all of the different layers that make up Judas uh, with the time that we have left. But uh, suffice it to say that as Judas observed uh, what took place, for him, it was the last straw. It was not this event by itself that caused Judas to do what he did. It was this event coupled with several other events that had taken place that Judas had observed that he didn't quite understand or appreciate. Avarice and wounded pride and disappointment were among the things that motivated him to betray Jesus. We're reading from Mark's gospel account. Matthew indicates that Judas proposed the betrayal that the priest, and that the priest named the amount that they would pay, 30 pieces of silver. 30 silver coins was also the price of a slave. 30 silver coins uh, was considered to be approximately the same value as the ointment that was wasted. So uh, 
in writing this gospel account, the writers seem to be making a false equivalency here based upon monetary value. For the cost of what this woman gave to Jesus, Judas decided that he would betray Jesus to his enemies. For the cost of this woman's act of sacrifice, Judas decided that he would engage in this act of betrayal. And, 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 and it, it, it's interesting because Judas was always concerned about money. That was his thing. Judas uh, held the money bag. Uh, one gospel writer says, and they also add that he helped himself to what was in the money bag whenever it suited him. Whenever he, he came up short, he ain't had no problem reaching into the money bag in order to cover his expenses. And, and it tells us that Judas was in the crowd with Jesus, but he was never truly with Jesus. And that's the point I want to close on today. We're, we're going to finish a couple of minutes early. Uh, the point I want to close on is there's always somebody who's in the crowd who's not really with the program. You have to always be on guard against those who are in the crowd but not with the program. In a church the size of Shiloh, we, we have couple of thousand members in, in, in this church family. It would be a, a, a gross act of naivety for me to believe that everybody who's a member of the church loves the Lord. There's some folk who are in the church for all kinds of reasons. They ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. Ain't got nothing to do with the plan of salvation. Ain't got nothing to do with ministry. Ain't got nothing to do with service. But for personal reasons, for, for uh, personal grandizement, as we like to say, they are a part of the body. Some people are a part of the body simply because they want to be around what other folk are doing. They want to see what other folk are doing. You got, it doesn't take a church this size for you to have that. You got friends in your circle who don't really care about you. They just need a crowd to hang with. And so they latched on to you. Sometimes you, you see somebody in your circle and, and you sit there wondering, when, when did they become a part of my circle? How did they become a part of my circle? Why are they a part of my circle? Don't ever think that everybody who's in the crowd is with the program. Judas was only about Judas. Judas was only about what he could get for himself. As I said a moment ago, there are layers to Judas, and, 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 and some people would suggest, I have suggested, that Judas is, is in many ways grossly misunderstood. Uh, but whether or not he is misunderstood, and whether or not those layers that we uh, try to see in Judas are valid or invalid, we do know this. In this act that Judas makes, he shows himself to not be a part of the body. And we need to recognize that if we are observant, people will always reveal themselves as being with the body or being not with the body. Let me say something about that uh, that's relative to what we're going through 
right now. I, I, I just said Shiloh has a couple of thousand members on its row. A couple of thousand folk don't ever show up on any given Sunday morning. We, 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 if, if, if we were to have our normal uh, Resurrection Sunday worship experience, this church would be full and chairs would be down now, and it still wouldn't represent a couple of thousand people because this sanctuary doesn't hold a couple of thousand people. There, there, there will be people who say that they are with the church who will not be in uh, the church even on Sunday morning. But uh, with, with that crowd of people, there are those within that crowd that are only concerned with themselves and they will reveal themselves for being who they are if you are observant of them through this pandemic even though we have a couple of thousand members on the roll and even though we would have maybe a thousand here on resurrection sunday morning even though on a typical sunday morning uh, we'll have 500 here for one worship and 250 or 300 here for the second worship through this pandemic many of those who fill these seats sit in these cushioned pews walk on these carpeted floors suck in this climate controlled air will not contribute a penny to this ministry will not put a nickel in the Lord's church. Will not. We have made it convenient for you to give in every way that we possibly can. We have used online giving and we have used PayPal and we have used bill pay at your lending institution, your financial institution. We have used uh, mail. You can just drop it in the mailbox and it'll get to us. Or you can come by here and put it in a slot and we'll take it from you that way. But through this pandemic, I know that there are people whose names are on the roll of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church that will not put a nickel in church, not because they can't, but because they won't. And for me, it's an indication that you might be in the crowd, but you're not with the program. Those who are with the program will support the program. Those who are with the program will seek avenues by which they can serve regardless of the restrictions that come our way. There's going to be a group of people Saturday that are going to find a way to, to serve homeless people and make sure that they have a meal just as they always have. Those people are with the program. The folk that are in the crowd will be sitting back looking saying, I wouldn't do that if I was them. I'd be careful about that. You don't know what's going to happen if you do that. People will reveal themselves for who they are. And always know that those who are with the program are significantly less in number than those that are in the crowd. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to share. Thank you for this moment and we pray that it has been a blessing and a help to those who have heard we ask your God that as your word has gone forth a seed might have been planted in our hearing that would reap a bountiful harvest in our living keep us now dear God again we lift up those with special needs those whose names we called at the start of this Bible study period bless them strengthen them keep them we invoke your name and your presence and your power into their situation.
Bless us as we go. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask it all. Amen.